Hi, I'm Kevin Nicholson, president and founder of No Better Friend Corp. Thanks for joining us on the Right Idea podcast for the second part of our episode on the politics of school choice. In previous episodes in this season of the podcast, we've talked about the history of school choice, taken tours of schools throughout Wisconsin that participate in the choice program, heard some of the life-changing stories of students, families, and educators that utilize school choice options, and debunked some of the myths that politicians and powerful political influences perpetuate around school choice. This episode will finish out our exploration of the politics of school choice. Picking up where we left off in part one, we're discussing one very specific area where it would seem that choice schools and public officials of any political background should be able to naturally collaborate. That's on the use of vacant school buildings. Yet for years, Democrat political leaders in Milwaukee have been unwilling to reach agreements with private schools looking to purchase vacant public school buildings. Libby Sobik from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty explains further. So here in Milwaukee, we have had a fight over vacant school facilities. Um, The Milwaukee Public School District has had a declining enrollment for years and is uh, expected to continue to have to do so. And so that's resulted in a lot of vacant schools across the city of Milwaukee. We refer to it as the vacant school epidemic. And over the years, as we've seen school choice grow in Milwaukee, we've had private schools and public charter schools want to purchase those buildings because they're just sitting there vacant and they're busting at the seams. I'll give you an example. St. Marcus, the Lutheran school here in Milwaukee, who serves around 700 choice students, about a few years ago in 2012 and 2014, they tried to buy two vacant facilities that have been vacant for years. And the MPS and the city of Milwaukee refused to sell it to them. In fact, Mayor Barrett, the mayor of Milwaukee, said to them (laughs) through the media that he would sell the building to them if they paid an extra $1.3 million for a school choice tax, which was crazy that they were already willing to pay the appraised value of these buildings, but they had to pay an extra million dollars to purchase it just because they were a successful school in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. So the legislature took note of this incredible thing that was happening in Milwaukee with vacant schools and tried to put a law on the books called the Surplus Property Law to force the city and MPS to sell the buildings. Will has been on the front lines of this issue, both on the policy and law side. And over the last four years, at least 10 private schools and public charter schools have tried to purchase buildings and only one has been successful. And it's astounding because we have all of these vacant schools sitting across this, across Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee. If these buildings would be sold under state law, the money had to go back to MPS. So not only would MPS have to stop paying for the utilities and the upkeep of these buildings, they actually were going to then get the money right away from the sale. And yet, and yet, these, they still stop the sale of these buildings. And it's really unfortunate, and it's a huge problem. As Libby explains, this problem goes beyond Milwaukee. But we've now learned that it's not just a problem in Milwaukee. Will is currently representing a client up in Mattoon, Wisconsin. I don't expect you to know where that is. It is basically northeast to Little Central, and it's really small. And Mattoon had lost their school uh, in 2016. Their students were being bused at least 45 minutes one way every day to their local public school. 
So a local community member started a Christian group, and he said, went to the school district and said, I want to buy your building. It's been vacant since 2016. Our community needs a school, and we need a community center, and I want to create that. And the school district said, well, we'll sell it to you, but only if you, pr- only if you sign a document that it will never be a school. And that's crazy. And so we're in litigation now defending our client uh, who really wants to open up a community center and eventually a school in the Toons community because he doesn't want their children to be bused 45 minutes every day. And he wants to serve the community that he loves in a very rural community in northern Wisconsin. So it's not just Governor Evers and on the federal level, which is still a big barrier, but it's also in our communities. And it's it's really these barriers are impacting the opportunity for more schools to grow and to and serve students in these needy communities. State Senator Alberta Darling, co-chair of the Wisconsin Legislature's powerful Joint Finance Committee and vice chair of the State Senate's Committee on Education, has been a school choice advocate since the movement's inception. She has also worked tirelessly to craft legislation, the surplus property law, that allows public schools to sell their vacant buildings to private schools. And so vouchers and choice schools had a hard time finding buildings to be in. And the charter schools in particular, if a charter school wanted to be open, they couldn't find a building. And facilities were a big issue for charter schools to find one, to be able to finance it, and to be able to find it in the right neighborhood. And so we saw all these vacant schools in Milwaukee, and we said, why couldn't these buildings, most of them were education public schools, that were not being used and were vacant. And we said, why can't we use these schools? So we still couldn't get them because the attorneys would not give us the, the um, because the attorney would not give us the authority to get into the public schools, into those vacant buildings. And so we still haven't been able to do that. And that's one of my goals to finally fight the, the fight to get into those, those schools. Senator Darling makes the case that allowing these buildings to sit idle is a lost opportunity. And I think they present a danger to the neighborhood. And it's, a, it's sort of a black mark on us that we're letting these schools sit idle when there are many public schools, voucher schools, who want to get into these buildings. And many people forget that voucher schools are private or public, but charter schools are public schools. And so when they are fighting us all along the way, I have to keep reminding them they're public schools. And we need to be able to use vacant public schools for, to get our charter school options in them. We, we, the public schools don't pay taxes, but they get uh, service, uh, ta- service costs related to their being in the building, so they do get some revenues. But most of all, they make a, a, a happier environment and a safer environment for the neighbors. And they, it's very proud to say, yeah, our, this public school was vacant, and we're very proud to have a very vital school here. And it makes the neighborhood proud, and it gives the kids in that neighborhood an option for a good education. Unfortunately, the politics of school choice extends beyond just the grandstanding at the state capitol in front of reporters. In fact, Wisconsin's Department of Public Instruction has created an incredibly cumbersome process for those hoping to utilize school choice, especially when it comes to the application process for students and their parents. No Better Friend Corp. reached out to the Department of Public Instruction for an interview to discuss the school choice programs and the application process for this podcast. Unfortunately, they refused to answer our questions directly or by conducting an interview. 
instead directing us to their website. Schools and parents are required by the state's Department of Public Instruction to jump through many hoops during the application process, and there are many inconsistencies between eligibility requirements for each program. For example, the requirements to apply for a voucher vary with each school choice program. For the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, applicants must be a Milwaukee resident making less than 300% of the federal poverty level. For families applying for school choice with one child, this means that their income must be less than $37,470 a year, with adjustments for each additional child in the family. For the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program and the Racine Parental Choice Program, applicants must make less than 220% of the federal poverty level, which works out to a maximum income of $27,478 per year if there is only one child in the family. Kim Desitel and Edgar Zaragoza from Grace Catholic Schools in Green Bay describe the confusion that different program requirements can cause for parents. That regulation that's you know in black and white on the DPI website of 220% of poverty, families are unaware of what that even means. And, and it's something actually about their own family. And so the way in which the regula regulations are written, I think makes it even more complicated than it has to be for a family. And if that could be um, addressed in terms that are more friendly, that are more welcoming, that are more understood um, by a common family without having to have a full conversation with an expert about choice in order to make their decision, I think that's going to aid families um, a little bit in their quest to decide if they would like to apply for a choice voucher or not. Too, so. It would be nice if DPI would also provide us information as far as the income limits uh, a few months before the season, open season starts, you know, because in the past years they would offer that information or provide us that information at the end of November, and this year it was provided to us last week, and uh, open season starts in a couple of weeks. We interviewed Edgar in January of 2020, so the Wisconsin Department of Instruction provided income information to school choice families and schools in late December 2019, and school choice enrollment started just a few weeks later in January. It would be beneficial we could get that information a few months ahead of time so we can prepare our families and we can share that info with their families and their community so we can promote the program, but at this point it makes it a little, little bit difficult for us to even have our flyers ready and everything when we didn't even have that information. Brenda White from Racine Siena Catholic Schools agreed that there needs to be more consistency in eligibility requirements between Wisconsin's choice programs. Well, I would love to see um, more equity across the different programs from Milwaukee to Racine to the statewide program um, because each program has differences. It's, and maybe a lot of people don't realize the differences, but there are differences in the income levels and the entry points for students and the requirements. You know, there's just a lot of things that make it a little more complicated than it probably needs to be because um, having a little bit more equity across uh, or for the statewide program would definitely help the statewide program grow and expand. Um, so I think, you know, looking at some of the barriers, I think some of the changes to the program that has happened over the time I have known the program, I think have been a good thing. There's been additional regulations and safeguards put in place, which I believe are good. Accountability is good. Having a state report card that shows taxpayers the value and the results of the program, that's a healthy thing. So 
I think some of the changes that we've seen over time happen have been healthy and good for the program to assure the taxpayers that um, that state money is going to the way it's supposed to and being utilized the way it's, it's supposed to be utilized. So I think those changes over time have been good ones, but I think there's also specific changes um, needed in the legislature that looks at some of the disparities between the program that might allow for more equity across the voucher programs. I think that would be a, a good positive future, what I hope to see happen in the future. Brenda expands on some of the confusing enrollment inconsistencies between school choice programs. And consistent entry points for students like in Milwaukee, you know, students can enter the program at any grade level within the school. So if a student, but in Racine, for example, that's not true. So if, if a student is attending one of our Catholic schools, let's say one of our elementary schools, and they're in third grade or fourth grade, and their family is eligible for the program, their income level changes, or, and they're now eligible, they're past the entry, like they, in third or fourth grade, the only way they could be eligible for um, a voucher is if they were coming from the public school. So that's a difference. In Milwaukee, that student ought, you know, that wouldn't be a barrier. In the Racine or the statewide program, there are different entry points, and if the student is already at the school and their family income changes, they're not eligible until certain, like ninth grade, then they might be eligible at St. Catherine. So that's, I can tell by the look on your face, right? There, that, that's one of those inequities where in Milwaukee, that wouldn't matter. If, and I, from being a, a parochial principal in the choice program in Milwaukee, that did happen. You might have a family who goes through, um, a, a, something happens in their life where their income changes, and now they might be eligible for the program. But in Milwaukee, it doesn't matter what grade level. And we're seeing it matters if that child is fifth grade. Sorry, um, you're going to have to wait until ninth grade to become eligible, and then you you can reapply when if you're going on to St. Catherine when you're a freshman, you can you can apply again. So, to me, that that doesn't make any sense. You know, why in one program can you can a family be eligible, um, and in another program that that's a barrier. So that's what I mean. And, and the income limit is much lower in a statewide program than it is in Racine or Milwaukee. So it restricts people who might be eligible to participate. And again, what we see in Milwaukee and Racine is there is the demand for it. And I'm sure the statewide program would grow at a faster pace if the income limits were the same as the Racine and Milwaukee programs. So um, you know, I, I think the future of the program will grow if we can remove some of those barriers or inequities that prevent um, students from participating in the program. Brenda notes that there are also problems in how schools' report cards are weighted. There's other things that I think are problematic. Um, one of my pet peeves is, you know, just how the report cards are handled and some disparities there. Um, that, you know, our report card, for example, for Siena does, you know, the last two years our report card has really measured different things. We, because of the way our schools have merged into a system, I was a public school administrator, 
you know, my school had its own report card. While we had a district report card, you still could, you know, so for Siena, we, we will have, at the end of this year, we'll, you know, we'll have a Siena, we have Siena report card, but we, we can't, um, we don't have an individual report card for each school. So that's an inequity. And the other thing that's like graduation rate doesn't count. And I shared with you earlier about we have a great graduation rate. But unfortunately, that doesn't get factored into our report card because of the way the rules are. You have to have six years or more. And so, again, we'll take six years for our graduation rate at St. Catharines to make a difference on our report card. That seems kind of silly because then our report card doesn't really reflect you know, that's one of the factors in the formula. So obviously our, our results would be a lot better if our graduation rate was calculated in there. So there's just some goofy things like that that I think end up being a, a disparity. And so when you look at the report card, you're not necessarily comparing apples to apples. And most people don't understand that. And it's complicated to try to explain it, to get into the weeds of it is, you know, <laughs> it's complicated, but if you just look at the graduation rate alone, you can see from that one example, well, that that the formula by which our report card is based on is not equitable to the way a public school report card is determined. So because we want accountability, we just want it to be equitable and fair and in transparent so that the public can really see and have a fair, um, a fair reflection based on the same variables, I think that that would be a good thing if that happens in the future. Brenda White further discusses the issues associated with having a network of schools in the choice program as opposed to just being a single standalone school. The fact that I don't understand why as the president of Siena Catholic Schools we can't have a report card for each of our schools and the way we had to join the choice program we are considered one school under the state so if you looked in the dpi directory you would not see st Catherine school saint you know saint joe's school our lady of grace you would see sienna so but we have six things. we have six schools and when i was in the public system if you look at RUSD or any other public district, you're going to see all of their schools listed in the DPI directory, right? So when the, I'll get a good example of how this is really an unfair thing, because when the safety grant came out from the state to help us improve the school security and safety, the grant was based on X dollar amounts per ever, for every school. So if we're lumped into DPI in the school directory as Siena Catholic schools and not six schools, okay, then we're not able to access the grant in the same way a public district could, getting money for every one of their individual campuses. That doesn't make sense either. So it's not only the report card and how our scores are reflected, it also impacts us in other negative ways where because of the way we're 
were listed in the directory and were not able to be listed. And this is a legislative rule thing. We should be able to just list Siena Catholic schools and have our six schools listed in the directory, like a public district does. I mean, find me a public district where their schools aren't all listed in the directory. That just doesn't happen. And yet, that does happen with choice systems. And, you know, so it, it's unnecessary in my mm-hmm. view. But right now what gets in the way is just how the rules are written. So until we address that, it's going to continue to be the way it is. Kim Desitel of Grace Catholic Schools in Green Bay describes the daunting challenges that the school choice enrollment period puts on families who are applying and in turn on the schools that are working to ensure that they have adequate funding and staffing for the upcoming school year. The choice application process is daunting and intimidating. It's also very complicated. There's papers, there's uh, official paperwork, there's verification of um, different aspects of someone's personal life. And so it really feels intimidating when someone has to sit down and really begin that process for the first time. Uh, We try really hard to ensure that the families feel supported, respected, trusted, um, because they're disclosing very private family information to the state of Wisconsin. And so ensuring that we can help with that um, is is sometimes a part of what we do. I think the the timing is hard for families. Um, The fact that it is a a short window of time for which they are making a pretty monumental decision for their child. Sending them to a new school, a different school, uh, a school that they may not be familiar with um, takes time. And the state is then telling them you're bound to apply between this day and this day. I don't think in the normal annual routines of parenting, a parent makes a school decision in two and a half months time. Why can't we explore year-round applications? Um, they could roll into school always in you know the normal August time when school starts up, but if a family wants to fill out an application in November because they have more time and it's, it's a, a certain decision for their family, then perhaps maybe there could be some opportunity to allow that application season to be opened up differently to meet the needs of the family as well, too. Um, there's really hard and fast rules about the paperwork that has to be presented in the application process. And if the paperwork is not exactly... Um, Uh, representative of uh, what the state deems as an acceptable form, um, then that might get kicked back. And so there's uh, the regulations related to verification um, tend to be a little bit daunting for families as well, too. There is currently a cap on enrollment in the statewide voucher program, and a lottery is conducted by the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction to determine which students and families will receive new vouchers each year. Understandably, this can create staffing challenges for schools who don't know how many students they'll have enrolled in the fall. Kim Desitel explained how Grace Catholic Schools in Green Bay must deal with this uncertainty. I think also a third challenge of the choice regulations comes in when the actual names are drawn from DPI. So that may occur in May, June, July. Those are all really hard times for schools and systems to staff teachers. So for Grace, um, we've had enrollment growth through choice 
that at times has caused a second grade single section maybe to tip over that point to go, now we need two teachers at second grade as opposed to one. We are then in the middle of July trying to find a brand new second grade teacher. That's hard on us. It's difficult to staff for enrollment that comes in so late. Um, we begin in Grace, we begin our enrollment process in January annually. We have a pretty good idea of our families that are coming into us um, by March. But yet, through the voucher program, we really can't verify if those families are coming or not sometimes until June and July. So the timing of when the names are actually drawn and families are communicated and they, they, they get to choose, that, that tends to be a little tricky. Um, it puts a tremendous burden on, on a staffing challenge in the schools. State Representative Jeremy Thiesfeld notes that both calendar constraints and the specificity of documents and information required by the state can be barriers. He noted that the Department of Public Instruction often disqualifies applications with minor errors. I, I have heard the complaint about the enrollment periods uh, in that you, you have to apply within this certain period of time and if you don't apply in that period of time you're just flat out not, not getting in. Uh, part of that is because DPI has to you know, balance its books and they need to know where the students are going to school. Um, but I, I, my preference would be is you know, schools that I taught in, if somebody showed up at your door the day before school, well, it's no different than the public school. Somebody shows up the day before school and you've never seen this person before, you know, they're getting to come in. And if private schools, why shouldn't we have that opportunity as well to be able to enroll those students? And if they are low income, why should they not have the opportunity to be in the program as well? Uh, so we don't want to deny those kids the opportunity to get an education that's good and works for them and for their family. And in some cases, that's, that's not happening. I mean, imagine for yourself a family who, you know, parents get a new job, they move to a new city, uh, and they generally people move in the summertime. Well, you know, you can't qualify for the program then if you're moving in the summertime. Um, the enrollment period has passed in late winter and spring. So I know we have lengthened the period of time for enrollment, which is good. Um, and I, I would also like to see the application process. Um, apparently there, there are, the people who analyze these things are hypercritical of little mistakes that are made. Um, I mean, if we, had, we had an example in, in Fond du Lac area of someone who had and this is just an example, but this, this actually happened where someone had put down uh, like County Highway N and they were, their application was flagged because it was supposed to be not County Highway N but County Road N. I mean, it gets as ridiculous as that in these applications that they will strike somebody's application because of that. And, and that just shouldn't be. Um, that that's an organization that's trying to keep kids from getting into the program. Um, and if we have these programs, uh, our, our state's organization ought to be a cheerleader for them, not looking to keep people out of them. School choice in Wisconsin can undoubtedly be improved for students, families, and educators with less bureaucracy. But we also need policymakers to push for more transparency. Even with data that isn't apples to apples, it is becoming increasingly clear that choice schools in our state are succeeding. Students who come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, often minority students, are succeeding in choice schools with significantly less funding from taxpayers. 
Recall that on average, Milwaukee Public Schools receive $15,250 per student per year with a graduation rate of 67%, and a school voucher provides just over $8,000 per year per student at a school where a student is much more likely to graduate by a significant degree. The numbers beg the question, why so much more funding for traditional public schools? Jim Bender of School Choice Wisconsin explains the difficulty in answering that question, highlighting issues of funding transparency by Wisconsin's Department of Public Instruction. The first thing is you've got to have transparency on data that is understood by the general public. And we don't have that right now. One of the things that's going to help the latest round of the ESSA, ESSA, which is the follow-up to No Child Left Behind. So this is federal law we're talking about now. Not surprisingly, on many of these requirements for innovation and transparency, Wisconsin will literally submit their information on the last possible date. There are other states that have already done this. Wisconsin will be last because, well, that's the way the department wants it. But what they have made as a requirement is all funds combined, what are you spending on children and education, not in a broad sense, but by grade band. Wisconsin is, at least as we understand it, is going to do it closer to what are you spending per child in a school building, meaning how much are you spending per child in your high school? How much are you spending per child in your elementary school or how much are you spending per child in your middle school? All funds combined. So you're gonna have property taxes, which in the state of Wisconsin, there's variances all over the place, but in property taxes, you get about 40% of your local spending from property taxes, 60% from state spending. I guess if you're talking Yager, probably 50% in state and then 10% in federal. Those are very broad. It changes amongst every district. Um, and you know, of the 400 some odd districts, maybe you know, a handful fit that exact number, but it's a variance, those are averages. But it's, so it's very difficult because you can have one district literally touching another district and their funding mechanism is dramatically different because of their property values inside their district. So you're gonna go from an 80-20 split on state aid to property taxes to 50-50, literally next door, it could happen. I mean, and it, and it dramatically changes the way things happen. Jim Better discusses the extent of the burden created by administrative red tape. You have in the Department of, of Public Instruction right now, roughly 450 employees. Half of them are there paid for by federal dollars simply for compliance of allocation of federal dollars. The paperwork that is surrounding the compliance of federal dollars and state dollars is unbelievable. And it is a true burden on local districts. And when local districts complain about not being able to do certain things, not all the time, but a lot of the time, it's compliance and regulatory burden put on them by the feds and by the Department of Public Construction, that it's a real argument. They are hamstrung by compliance issues that they have to do. Now granted, some of them are there for a reason, especially on students with special needs and other things, those are, those are there for a reason. But the way that they have been constructed and the way that they have been implemented since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s are of the old mindset, which is, you're just treating the, and educating the students in your district and it's not this mobility that we're seeing. Funding has to reflect 
2019, not 1970. The model needs to change. It needs to be much simpler. It needs to be equitable. So children are funded equitably because right now, even just within the public school system, there is inequity across. If you create uniform and equitable funding for each children, then your public policy change is uniform across the spectrum. Right now it isn't. So it just makes it really difficult to say, here's where we're gonna go for public policy funding because you don't have transparency. You don't have an understanding in the general public about how much we're spending or how the differences impact education in different districts or different options that parents have. There's not really a healthy discussion on that. So hopefully the ESSA information that will come out in June of 2020 will be a first step to say, okay, regardless of how much money you're getting from these different areas, what are you spending on high school kids in your district? Because that number is gonna be, in some districts, north of $20,000 per student per year. That is a number that the general public has no idea that public school districts are spending per child. There'll be a lot of districts in the 14, 15, $16,000 range. And even that number is going to be shocking to a lot of people that they're spending in a public school classroom $16,000 a year. Transparency and clarity matter. Most of the interviews conducted for this season of the Right Idea podcast took place in 2019 and early 2020. Therefore, we referenced the most recent information that was available at the time. The DPI data, graduation rates, school choice program requirements, and other data from 2018. We've shared with you many of the myths and critiques of school choice in this season of the Right Idea podcast. But with more and more data, these fallacies will continue to be debunked. And the report cards put out by the State Department of Public Instruction will no doubt continue to highlight the achievement and the progress of students who utilize Wisconsin school choice programs. It's the reason so many voters support school choice and the reason that President Trump supports school choice programs as well. I'm here to tell you, President Donald Trump stands for school choice for every American and every American family. And I noticed that in the State of the Union speech, I was very happy to hear the president say that school choice was a big priority for him too. And he used an example of a young girl who couldn't go to the school of her choice, and he gave her the opportunity to have a school charter voucher to be able to go to the school that she wanted to, and boy did her face light up. Yet for too long, countless American children have been trapped in failing government schools. To rescue these students, 18 states have created school choice in the form of opportunity scholarships. The programs are so popular that tens of thousands of students remain on a waiting list. One of those students is Janiah Davis, a fourth grader from Philadelphia, Janiah. But Janiah, I have some good news for you, because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you, and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. It's hard to believe now in the hyper-partisan world that we live in, but as we shared with you earlier, school choice started in a bipartisan effort in Wisconsin. 
And at its inception, the school choice movement drew a great deal of national attention. State Senator Alberta Darling shared her frustration about lawsuits from teachers unions in 1996 and 1998 seeking to end school choice in the state. When those lawsuits made it to the state Supreme Court, then Wisconsin Attorney General Jim Doyle, a Democrat later elected governor, refused to represent the Republican Governor Tommy Thompson and the Wisconsin State Legislature in support of school choice programs. Attorney General Doyle would not represent us. I thought that was very unfair and very short-sighted on his part. He was not yet governor, and I showed, it showed that he would not do his duty as Attorney General to represent the state of Wisconsin, and I, I thought that was a major flaw in him. He just wouldn't represent us, so we had to go outside the box and find a new attorney, not a new attorney general, but an, another attorney to represent us. And I was very proud to have Ken Starr step up to, up to the plate for us. So I was very happy to have him as my partner in representing Wisconsin in the courts, and we won. So public school choice was deemed constitutional and could spread throughout the state. Each time a lawsuit over school choice came before the Wisconsin Supreme Court in the 1990s, the court deemed the program constitutional. Over time, it's clear that the politics surrounding school choice have become increasingly polarized. Tommy Schultz, Vice President of Communications and Marketing at the American Federation for Children, noted that the Trump administration strongly supports school choice programs. Sure, so uh, really exciting things happening at the federal level. For the first time, we have uh, an administration from the President to the Vice President to the Secretary of Education that are fully in lockstep in support of school choice and are actively pushing to give families the freedom to choose uh, the best education for their child. And we've been polling on this issue for uh, a few years now, and the single biggest jump in support of any policy that we had uh, from last year's National School Choice Poll to this year's National School Choice Poll, uh, poll was on this issue, Education Freedom Scholarships. So it was a nine-point jump from last year. So right now, 78% of people say they support Education Freedom Scholarships. And when you look at uh, the subcategories of African Americans, 83% of African Americans support it, 83% of Latinos support it, 78% of millennials support it, my generation, and I think right now the largest generation uh, in the country. And so when you look at this broad swath of uh, demographic support, bipartisan support, you can see why the president uh, and the, the rest of the administration is pushing so hard on this because they understand that this is a winning issue for families. Uh, families eagerly want more options when it comes to their child's education. I think that's why you're seeing such deep and broad support on this issue and why you're going to continue to see the Trump administration really talk about this on the campaign trail, uh, talk about it in states of the union, which they, he's done multiple times. Uh, so I think that's where when we look at the polling and we look at the other polling that says, uh, look, 70% of families uh, would prefer to send their child to a school that isn't their zone district public school. I think when you're looking at that reality, you just start to understand where this demand from parents is going to turn into a groundswell of grassroots support. As Tommy Schultz notes, many Democrat politicians have not been shy about their willingness to undermine successful school choice programs. The Democratic field, you start to look at him uh, when they are going up onto the debate stage. And most of the time, the majority of the people standing on the Democratic debate stage went to private schools or sent their own kids to private school. And so you almost would think, gosh, wouldn't they be also supporting school choice and by giving and wanting to give that option to all families across the country? 
And by and large, that was no. Uh, a few uh, candidates actually did support school choice. Uh, but when it comes to Joe Biden, you know, he had been part of the Obama administration. He had, uh, which was pretty favorable to charter schools, at least, uh, when it comes to school choice issues. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he comes out with a tweet and a few statements at, at a union forum that basically said charter schools are going to be gone. Uh, and then he says, I don't support vouchers in a tweet when talking about a Supreme Court case that's weaving its way to a decision, hopefully, here within the next month or two. And I just look at this and say, you know, he was a guy who went to uh, private Catholic schools, sent his uh, children to private Catholic schools. Uh, and yet, when it comes to saying, hey, we should give poor families, lower income families, the same opportunities that Joe Biden had or Hunter Biden had, uh, they seemingly say no, not for those kids. So this choice for me, but not for the mentality that I think really frustrates a lot of voters. Uh, they have this aversion to allowing other families to have the same opportunity. So it's a pretty elitist mentality that, that I think does not resonate with voters. And then, you know, referencing that last poll that we talked about with education freedom scholarships, this federal proposal to give states the option to expand school choice, that's why you're seeing 78% support from for this proposal, and why 83% of African Americans and Latinos support this, which is precisely the demographic that Democratic candidates cannot lose any more uh, support from. So you would think that a smart Democratic strategist or candidate might say, you know what, I'm going to go all in on school choice, but it just hasn't turned out that way. And it's disappointing to see that Joe Biden, again, a product of private schools and who also sent his kids to private schools, has come out so firmly against school choice. On the national stage, Democrat politicians like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both vying to be their party's 2020 presidential nominee, waged all-out attacks on school choice, threatening to abolish school choice programs entirely if elected. Ironically, while on the campaign trail, Elizabeth Warren was confronted by a parent seeking educational choices for their children over Warren's opposition to education options. Warren went on to blatantly lie, claiming her children attended only public schools, while it was later verified that her children had attended private schools. That sounds like a politician who's terrified of the teachers' unions. When it comes down to brass tacks and their own children, every parent wants high-quality education options to be available. Even Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, who are willing to say just about anything to get elected. Over the years, other Democrat politicians, including President Barack Obama and his Attorney General Eric Holder, have launched all-out attacks against Wisconsin school choice programs. Libby Sobek from Will describes the Obama administration's investigations into the school choice program. Well, the Obama Justice Department did an investigation into the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program in 2011, claiming that the program was, that private schools participating in the program were discriminating against students with disabilities. This made a huge splash. Their novel, their novel legal theory was that basically because private schools were participating in the state program, they had to have the same ex legal expectation as public schools, which has never been an expectation in federal disability law. It will, and Senator Ron Johnson stood really strong pushing back against this. And in 2015, they closed that investigation without any finding of wrongdoing, and as you probably can imagine, without any fanfare the way that they started the investigation. Also under President Obama, his Department of Ed put $7 billion into low-performing public schools across the country. 
In 2016, on their way out, they quietly released a report that said those $7 billion had no discernible impact on all the low-performing schools that they put money into. And I think that's really important when we talk about policy. And I think there's a lot of, it's a little wonky, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to really dive into that about more money isn't the answer and that it's these schools and programs and teachers and communities who are investing. And there are public schools who are absolutely doing that and should be highlighted. But this concept that more money is the answer just isn't proven to be true, both on the federal level and on the state level. As Corey DeAngelis further explains, governmental regulatory burdens and interference have also proven to have negative consequences on our education system by limiting the flexibility of school choice programs. I'm looking at the programs in Wisconsin, they're some of the most regulated programs in the United States. They have a lot of very um, high regulatory burdens, uh, such as mandating that the private schools accept all children at random, allowing students to opt out of religious programs, um, and then also uh, mandating that schools take the tuition or the voucher amount as full payment for tuition. And ultimately, all of these things um, harm families uh, by limiting the number of options available to families and limiting the meaning of those options. So these regulations reduce the number of options available to families because the private schools can choose whether to participate in the program or not each year. And so a lot of schools, if, if they have a, uh, something, you know, a, a method of instruction that's working for their kids, if they have a successful model already, they may say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to enter that program. And what that means is that a lot of low income students won't be able to, to enter those, those schools at all because they, they need the program to be able to, to access those schools. And if, if the schools aren't participating, they, you know, ultimately um, these regulations are hurting the children that, that we want to serve the most. Um, so that's one issue, but then also it, regulations can obviously turn the private schools into government schools because the regulations mirror what's already happening in the government-run schools, and the whole meaning of choice is to be able to get a wide array of different types of options, and if you're going to regulate the private schools to look like the schools that the kids are trying to get away from, it doesn't really make all that much sense, and it really doesn't lead to meaningful options. Um, we also found that the higher quality schools, as measured by tuition and measured by grade schools review scores, were less likely to participate in the um, Wisconsin voucher programs. Um, and we think that's because the regulations are more likely to deter the higher quality schools because, again, the higher quality schools are the ones that don't really need the money all that much associated with the voucher program. The lower quality schools, they're more likely to accept the regu you know, to accept the voucher funding regardless of the regulatory structure. So, in a, in the, the the effect of the regulations is that it essentially reduces the overall quality, average quality of the schools that are participating in the program. And again, that limits options for low income students in the state. You know, the, the more advantaged kids, you know, they, they're still able to afford to attend these private schools, these higher quality private schools, by having their parents pay out of pocket. So ultimately, these regulations are hurting the, the least advantaged the most. Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, describes how teachers unions are fighting the school choice movement across the country 
with a case before the United States Supreme Court. You know, with that case, um, you know, you're you're talking about a state constitutional provision, commonly known as a, a Blaine Amendment, uh, which are found in state constitutions uh, around the country. About 38 state constitutions have these amendments. They're over 100 years old. They were inserted into state constitutions. Um, with, I think, with the intent, um, and it was pretty clear at the time, of preventing Catholic families from creating their own schools and using um, uh, state funding to to educate their their children. Now, at the time, public schools were mostly Protestant. I mean, they were pretty, you know, pretty outspoken about teaching, um, you know, using the Bible and, and teaching a lot of things from you know, Protestant theology and things like that. Um, you know, that was that was common, right? 100, 120 years ago was more a part of the, the culture. So the they were trying to protect that by inserting these amendments that would prevent Catholic families from being able to, you know, practice what was, was important to them. So anyway, so you wind up with these, all of these states that have amendments in their constitutions that now, especially over the past 20 years, have been used by teacher unions to say that um, private school options using um, uh, money from the state general fund or, uh, or the, the school funding formula violate that state's constitution. And so um, this case is, a, is an important test of whether or not um, – whether or not those should stand. It's an opportunity to say that those these Blaine amendments have a, a discriminatory history and, and that they um, are really are relics of, of a different age and uh, and are no longer necessary or, or uh, they, they're not contributing to student success or student learning. So that, that case is, is, a, is an important one to watch. Tommy Schultz of the American Federation for Children further explains the case before the Supreme Court. I think uh, Mr. Blaine is probably turning over in his grave if he understood that this would essentially allow, or what he had attempted to do essentially uh, yielded a result across the country that severely restricted opportunities to attend private schools and the even religious schools. And so now the Supreme Court is looking at this saying, uh, look, these programs and these states um, that are out there that say, uh, look, you cannot use uh, your money to go to a sectarian school, uh, are likely, in my estimation, they're probably going to rule that, that those are unconstitutional, which would essentially say that school choice is constitutional in every state across the country. Um, so that's where it's going to be a, a really significant milestone in the school choice movement. This is a, you know, some of these amendments are, you know, 100 plus years old uh, that have were born of this animus towards immigrants and uh, towards uh, a specific religion. And that's just firmly an anti-American principle, right? I mean, <laughs> much of the founding of our, uh, our, our great nation was that this, you know, religious freedom issues. And so I think this is going to be a pretty big year for school choice if we can see uh, the Supreme Court do away with these discriminatory, in my opinion, uh, Blaine amendments that are embedded in state constitutions across the country in more than 30 states. As conservatives, we believe that individuals make the best educational choices for themselves and their families. Andrew Campanella of National School Choice Week highlights the importance of school choice for each individual student. 
and how that individual educational choice can get diluted by politicians and policymakers at a national level. I believe that when we look at success, we need to gauge success based on every single student and every single family. If you have a child who is placed in what is defined by faraway experts as a high-performing school and your child doesn't succeed, that label of that school as being high-performing is of little value to you. But if you use your options, your school choice options, to find a school that maybe other folks don't think is one of the best schools in the country, but works really, really well for your child, and your child learns, succeeds, is inspired, has greater curiosity, and is happier, that school is a high-performing school for you. So we talk too often in broad generalities about education when we really should be focused on specific, specific kids, specific families, and those specific choices they make. Parents care about what's happening for their individual kids and kids in their communities. And the more we can get specific and practical, and the more we can speak to what people's actual hopes are, their fears are, and their goals are, the more and better impact we will have. If we just sit in Washington, D.C. and New York and write white papers and reports and studies and theorize about things, the less of an impact we'll have. So we have to make a choice. Do we want to make a difference in people's lives or do we want to talk about theory? I'd like to choose making a difference in people's lives. Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation agrees that we need to continue to highlight the school choice options available to families. Talk to families about it all the time, everywhere. I think that um, there's still not enough families know what options are available to them, from open enrollment to charter schools to private school scholarships to education savings accounts. Uh, I think uh, there needs to be uh, just more information about what is out there and what is available to families. Uh, I think once families see um, that they can make choices, they can decide uh, what's best for their students. Um, they, they love these options. We've seen that in surveys. So uh, the more we can do to tell families what's available to them, I think the more that we will see families that don't have options go out and ask for them, right? And, and you know, go to their lawmakers, write to their paper, you know, talk to their school district about how to, you know, how to find more quality options. Tommy Schultz remains hopeful that the polarization that has plagued education will be transformed by policymakers who truly want the best options for children and their families. You know, something that I think I'm eager to see develop over the next few years is that many of these legislators uh, who have been in office for you know decades sometimes and who they themselves have benefited from private school education or some have even gone to charter schools, and yet because they are very worried about the deep-pocketed special interest groups that control the education establishment. They're very worried about losing their election and losing their seat. I think we're seeing more and more over the past couple of years, uh, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, uh, coming forward and saying, look, I understand that I'm taking a risk here because I'm going to get millions of dollars spent against me in my election. Uh, you know, I'm going to take a stand and do what's right for kids. The more and more they've been doing that the past couple of years, actually, the more and more they've been winning. So they're bucking some of these national trends that we talked about with the presidential candidates. And at the local level, they're saying, I'm going to stand up and do what's right 
for the kids in my district. And I think I'm excited to see that develop over the next few years. And even seeing some of these private school choice graduates and charter school graduates coming forward and running for office themselves and really leading this movement into a whole new uh, direction by actually taking charge of things and actually speaking to their personal experience of benefiting from uh, these policies. So I think that's something that's been developing over the past couple of years uh, and that I think is really going to potentially be an absolute game changer here in the future. The ability to choose their own school improves the lives of countless students and their families. One size doesn't fit all, especially when it comes to learning. It's common sense that an initiative this powerful should have wide political support. In addition to higher academic achievement, choice schools also have a positive impact on the communities and states in which they're located. A 2019 study conducted by Corey DeAngelis of the Cato Institute and Reason Foundation and Patrick Wolf of the University of Arkansas found that school choice programs in Milwaukee were helping to create more responsible members of the Milwaukee community. The results of that study showed that students who participated in the school choice program committed 53% fewer drug crimes, 86% fewer property crimes, and had 38% fewer paternity suits filed in their mid-20s compared to their peers who attended Milwaukee Public Schools. These results are real and undeniable. We hear it again and again. More money isn't necessarily the answer to achieving better results for students in public schools. Wisconsin School Choice Program has proven that schools can get better results for our state's most disadvantaged students with significantly less resources than our traditional public schools. Despite opposition on a local level and a national level, Wisconsin School Choice Programs have only continued to grow with more and more families seeking to take advantage of the program, helping to create a better future for our state's children. I say it all the time, but it's true. Our children don't have time to wait for politicians to fix broken schools. Especially in places like Milwaukee, they need education options that ensure that they get access to quality schools so that they can succeed in the future. At the end of the day, it's also about empowering parents to make the best choices for their children and their families, and to become partners with the people who are educating their children. When schools work with parents and recognize them as the first, most important educator of children, and when they partner together and collaborate, children have a more stable support system and a higher chance of success. Thank you to our friends in the school choice movement, Hispanics for School Choice, School Choice Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, and the Wisconsin Federation for Children for helping us to find good sources for this season of the Right Idea podcast. We could not have captured the amazing stories of students and families and educators without your help and support. And thank you to the friends who helped direct us to the inspiring educators, families, and students at Crystal Ray Milwaukee High School, Grace Catholic Schools in Green Bay, Lighthouse Christian School in Madison, Lutheran Special School and Educational Services in Hales Corners, Milwaukee Lutheran High School, St. Marcus in Milwaukee, and Siena Catholic Schools in Racine. Your work, your passion, and your stories are life-changing. And special thanks to Amelia Roll of our No Better Friend Corp team for taking on this passion project. She interviewed, wrote, and edited this entire podcast, and we're honored to have her as a part of our team. For future episodes and seasons, please subscribe to the Right Idea podcast from No Better Friend Corp on Apple, Ricochet, Luminary, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And check us out online at www.nobetterfriendcorp.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for listening to the Right Idea Podcast. See you next season. And finally, to all the kids who are here, we're proud of you. We believe in you. To all the kids who are here today, remember that old proverb that to whom much is given, much will be required. So the opportunities that you have been given, you need to seize those. Keep striving. Keep learning. Keep believing in your dreams. Young men and women, the sky's the limit. This is America. Go live your dreams.